The Start On Demand. On demand. Did you ever ride the bus alone when you were a kid? Would you let your kids ride the bus alone? A Vancouver dad is appealing a court ruling that says his kids can't take the bus unsupervised. Consternation over the Omens Creek Bridge. Remember back in December when two Wolseley guys decided to clear it on their own? When the city deemed it unsafe because it had been flooded and then iced over? Well... Canadian Taxpayers Federation decided to look into the situation and they discovered an avalanche of red tape. And sort of along the same lines, tired of waiting for the city to make up its mind, two Winnipeggers have installed a flashing school zone speed sign on their own. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb who's back next week. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb and this is the Thursday, February 6th podcast for The Start. Back to December 16th, 2019, and a story we told you about here on 680 CJOB. Here it is from CJOB.com. The Omens Creek footbridge in Wolseley is open once again, thanks to a pair of area residents who took matters into their own hands when they couldn't wait for the city. The high traffic bridge had been covered in ice due to fall flooding that froze over and was expected to be closed until spring at least until Saturday afternoon. Wolsey resident Brad Hignell told 680 CJOB the bridge was being used regularly by the community despite the ice and that residents would just move city signs and snow fences out of the way to get across. And yeah, it's been covered in ice since uh, it flooded and froze with the high water uh, a couple months ago. And uh, nobody has cleaned it up since until the other day. So it was closed? Like there were signs up and barricade around it closing that bridge for access? Yeah, yeah. Very unsightly, uh, you know, yellow and orange construction signs and snow fences. And I guess apparently people have been taking these, you know, the signs and snow fence down every day so they could use the bridge. And the, um, you know... Busy beavers at the city were fastidiously, you know, putting it up again every day. And uh, so we removed that and stacked it neatly at the top of the hill so they could remove it and chipped all the ice away and uh, spread some gravel down to make it safe because it was a little bit slippery uh, still when the ice was gone there. So, um, yeah, and everybody who passed by as we were doing the job was very appreciative. And so it was a... Uh, it was nice to know that people were appreciating the, the work we were doing. That from December 16, 2019. Now, one of the concerns we had at the time was the lack of response and proactive communication from the city of Winnipeg about why they had closed the bridge, how long it would be closed, etc. Aaron Woodrick is Federal Director for Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and he joins us now. Good morning, Aaron. Yeah, good morning. Appreciate you taking some time with us today. Tell us, why did you get involved in this situation and, and what led you to investigate it? Well, you know, yeah, we saw the story and, uh, you know, we're very often uh, interested in, in figuring out how governments do things. You know, we're a group that's, uh, you know, we push for low taxes and less waste, but we're also very concerned about transparency. We think it's very important that uh, for people to make, you know, good judgments about how their governments are performing, they need to know uh, a lot about the decisions. We got to pull back the curtain. So we filed a number of, uh, you know, freedom of information requests to find out what had transpired behind that bridge. Uh, and what we what we discovered was that basically the city spent a lot more time uh, being concerned about how to message the fact that regular people had cleared the bridge 
uh, rather than actually clearing the bridge itself. Aaron, before we proceed, I just have to ask you here, uh, it is a live radio situation. There's a big echo on your end. Are you happen to be on a speakerphone right now? No, I've moved around a bit here. I don't see if that's any better for you. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we realize sometimes it's just a naturally echoey room, but we just had to cover our tracks there. Uh, so when you put in these requests with the city, what did you discover? Uh, we discovered that the city spent a heck of a lot of time uh, trying to figure out how to, to you know, justify the fact that regular people had solved this problem pretty quickly. Um, they were obviously frustrated that, uh, that people had gone in and done something that they said they hadn't been able to do. Uh, but it's just one of those classic cases, we thought, uh, that's the reason we put it out there. There's a lot of people who expect their government to do what seem to be pretty simple things uh, when they don't do them and then regular people step in to fix them. It sort of begs the question, what was, what was the government doing in the first place? You know, and I think that's uh, an important point, but there were other issues here. Uh, 97 pages worth of communications is what I just printed off. And I apologize to uh, my colleagues for taking up all the printer ink and paper to do that. But it just highlights the fact that there are so much, there is so much back and forth when it comes to something like this that in the grand scope of things is really a minor detail. And and that's highlighted in this uh, FOI request as well. Would you say, Aaron? Well, yeah, look, it, obviously this was important to the community. As as the individuals who cleared it said, people were using this. It was important to have this, this bridge open. The city just said, no, we're not dealing with it till spring. And rather than 97 pages of back and forth, talking about how they could get this bridge open, they spent 97 pages saying, well, how do we message the fact that somebody else managed to clear this bridge? And where was the message at the beginning, uh, which was something that I mentioned before we brought you on? At the time, we, we couldn't understand how something like this, and granted, you're not driving cars and trucks or buses across this bridge, but it is a critical artery for other reasons in that neighborhood. How is the city not coming forward and saying, hey, uh, apologies, here's the reason why we're going to be closing this bridge until further notice? Yeah, it's, it's always very important to communicate those things, right? Because a lot of people will, will just chalk it up to government being lazy or not recognizing what's actually a priority to the people on the ground there. So I think communication is important. You know, there are going to be cases where, you know, there could be a real genuine safety issue um, and the city needs to make that clear. But that, that wasn't the case here. And, uh, and you saw the result with people fixing the problem themselves. And the city, in in some, I guess, from one perspective, can look at this as almost an act of vigilantism. And that's not what you're encouraging, though, right? No, not at all. And I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it is, it's, it's a bit of a funny story. It just goes to show you that sometimes common sense can prevail. Uh, you know, governments mean well. We expect them to do good things. But sometimes, uh, you know, they get caught up in red tape rather than just fixing the obvious problem at hand. They get in their own way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Aaron, thanks for doing this. Thanks uh, for bringing it to our attention. Uh, we appreciate uh, the work that you do. Don't always agree with uh, what you guys are saying and the message that you guys spread, but I-, I, love the, uh, I love the work that you do and the passion you do it with. Yeah, thanks. We don't expect everyone to agree with everything, but we just want to put it out there and people can make up their own minds. Right on. Thank you. Aaron Woodruff, he's Federal Director of Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Right now... We want to talk about this headline here at globalnews.ca at cjob.com. Vancouver dad to appeal court ruling his kids can't take the bus to school alone. Yeah, well, it's safe to say there was a time when it wasn't uncommon for Winnipeggers in their early teens or even 
preteens to take the bus downtown to explore record stores, arcades, the other retail offerings of downtown, and they, we, would do it without parental supervision. I present Public's Exhibition or Exhibit A, a text message from our friend Kevin, the garbage man. He says, I took the bus all the time downtown when I was young. It was 10 cents. Would hit all the arcades, Circus Circus, Long John Silver's. Where was Circus Circus? I don't even remember. I think that might have been before my time. I was sort of prohibited from most of those places too, Brett. Then Comic World. Now, I'm worried about my 20-year-old daughter and wife taking the bus. Hear lots of horror stories. And that's the other side of the coin. Would you let your child do that these days? In Vancouver, a man says he is going to appeal this court judgment, barring him from letting his kids take the bus home from school without supervision. The father took the Ministry of Children and Family Development to court after it told him his kids couldn't take transit home alone in 2017 following a complaint. He argues that's a violation of his charter rights to raise his children as he sees fit. Quote, there's a whole bunch of data out there about how kids are a lot more coddled than they were in our generation growing up and what that does to their sense of confidence, their ability to navigate independently in the world. This is what he told Global News on Monday after learning about the court's ruling. I wanted my kids to be able to, and I still obviously want this, to be able to navigate the world independently and get the confidence that comes from that. Yeah, so here's more of the story. The father says he spent two years training the eldest four of his five children, all between the ages, and this is, I think, maybe where some people's radar will go up, between the ages of seven and ten at the time, how to safely take transit home. The father is split up from the kid's mother and the children go to school near his ex's place. The father provided the kids with a cell phone for communication, which was also equipped with a location tracker. In the ruling, the court upheld the ministry's decision, though was clear that the father had gone above and beyond in training his kids and stated that this was not a case of negligence. Here is more from that father who is not being named in any stories to try and protect the identity of the children. He spoke to Linda Steele of Global News Radio, CKNW. Yeah, this actually came up a lot in the trial because the ministry's position when they went to trial was that this was just a recommendation and that I could have, you know, I agreed to it. I could have decided whatever I wanted to do after June 2017. And that was what their lawyers were saying. But on the other side, when I was in, because uh, I've been in fairly regular contact with min- with the ministry throughout the last few years, unfortunately, um, what they are saying is completely the opposite. Uh, in fact, using language such as, if you do not follow this, we will take, quote, more intrusive action. And for a parent with 50% custody of their kids, it's very clear what they mean by that. And that was the, you know, even underscored right up until August 2019, they sent me a letter right, you know, three weeks before we were headed to court saying, just to remind you, you have to obey the, you know, this decision in June 2017. How do you interpret the or else? Oh, it's, it's super clear. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so stressful as a single parent, um, a parent with half custody rather, uh, to, to think that something is trivial really ultimately is this, these kids are, you know, even the ministry acknowledges that they're not in imminent danger. Um, could be removed from your care because you just decide that you aren't going to follow what they say. But to be clear, I have followed. And unfortunately, I had to return to taking the bus with the kids for another full year after that June 2017 ruling because I didn't have a 12-year-old at that point to supervise. So, you know, I spent three, four hours a day on the bus again with them. And uh, I was self-employed at the time, so it just cost me time and money, but I was able to do that. 
Now, the ruling noted that there's no legal minimum age for children to be left unsupervised in British Columbia, but pointed to Canada Safety Council guidelines, which recommend that children under the age of 10 not be left unsupervised. Yeah, seven years old on a transit bus, not so sure about that. But when I think back, and obviously I know things have changed. I don't want this to sound like back in my day. I'm just remembering what I did when I was a kid. While I didn't take the transit bus at seven because I didn't need it to go anywhere. I lived in walking distance to school pretty much, or I would take a school bus. But uh, my parents would let me wander off wherever. I sort of had a boundary that, you know, they say would say, don't go beyond this street. So I kind of knew where I was supposed to be. But that could that's still a huge radius in Transcona where a seven-year-old kid, eight-year-old kid could be lost anywhere. Uh, parents didn't have a problem with that. So I don't know if they would have had a problem with me riding a transit bus. I don't know. But 10, what grade are you in in 10? I want to say grade four. I think so. Grade four. I, I had the nerve to ask my mom. We were living in Brandon at the time. I asked my mom and dad if I could go to the Brandon Fair on my own with my friend Todd. Yep. And I think it was Kim and Chantel. The four of us had <laughs> hatched this plan on the school bus on our way back to school from swimming lessons. Okay. Kind of remember the day. And I was all excited because Kim wanted to go to the fair with oh, me. Oh, boy. And, and, uh, but it didn't work out because my mom just laughed at me. You are not going to wander around the equivalent of Red River X in Brandon with just four 10-year-olds. It's not happening. Although I had a paper route at the time where my parents would drop me off and say, call us when you're done. Two years, like two hours later, I had 365 or 356 papers I delivered, usually on my own or maybe with a friend. How many papers? 356 every Wednesday. Oh, my God. The Brandon Shopper. And I would either do it with my brother, myself, or sometimes my buddy Dave would would help me, and we get it done a little bit quicker. But they had no problem dropping me off in a neighborhood I didn't live in to deliver papers. So I don't know. I think times certainly have changed. My kids are almost 14. They wanted to go on the bus downtown by themselves. I'd laugh at them too, I think, really? right now. I think I would. Okay. I really do. So we're having this conversation about a Vancouver dad who is appealing a court ruling that his kids can't take the bus to school alone because in 2017 he was letting his kids who were eight, between the ages of 7 and 10 ride the bus home from school. And they said, uh, you can't do that. So that got us thinking about when we were kids, when we used to take the bus, where we used to take the bus, and would we let our kids... Or would you let, if you had kids, would you let them take the bus alone? We are getting flooded with text messages, as you might imagine, 204-780-6868. I'll read two quickly and then turn it over to our compatriots here. At 9, 10 years old, my friend and I would take the bus to go to Magicland on Furby and Portage. Anybody remember that? Yep. That was back when Furby was nicknamed Murder Street. <laughs> what? <laughs> you didn't go to Furby or Spence or any of the Langside. Those uh, parts, like that, you just those were no go zones uh, even back then for a lot of people. Unfortunately, it's turning into that again for some people. But that's another conversation. And then Donna says, back in my day, I was seven years old and I was meeting my much older sister downtown. I remember my father putting me on the bus and telling the driver, "Let her off at Eaton's." 
I never got to go to Magicland, by the way, and maybe that's why, because it was called Murder Street. My friends got to go to Magicland, but my parents never let me go there, and I, they went, Mother's was the other one I wasn't allowed to go to. Uh, was that Mother's Records? Uh, or was that, a, was that an arcade? It was an arcade. I think it was called Mother's on okay. Portage. It was, it was closer to downtown. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> sidetrack on the arcades. <laughs> arcades were a big part yeah. of going downtown for sure. Cam, for sure you were allowed to go wherever you wanted when you were a child. Oh, absolutely not. No. Um, I, yeah, my mom did not let me take the bus. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of younger here. I'm only 28. But, like, my, uh, uh, my mom never let me take the bus anywhere. The first time I actually took the bus was when I was in high school when I went to, I went to River East. And that was the first time I was ever on the bus. Uh, uh, so I, yeah, I was not on buses ever as a kid. I was, I was allowed to ride my bike around the, the neighborhood and stuff like that. That way I was okay. But taking the bus anywhere, no way. And and my mom, um, you know, she took the bus when she was younger. She says, I took it when I was eight years old and 10 and I'd go downtown to Eaton's in the Bay and stuff like that. But yeah, not, not me. I just can't, I, I still having a hard time wrapping my head around that notion, but yeah, I can remember going on the bus in grade five, grade six, grade seven by myself, whether it was in Brandon or in Winnipeg to get around just because it was easier than somebody driving you somewhere. One of our listeners saying, good morning. We lived in South St. Vitale in the early seventies. When I was 10, my mother sent me downtown to Buy bus to Eaton's to buy some craft supplies for her. I was so proud. I wouldn't dream of doing that with kids today. Jeff? Yeah, I wouldn't dream of doing it with kids today either. I grew up, like you said, in Altona, in a small town. There was no bus, so it wasn't really anything we had to worry about. But uh, by the time I'm sure, by the time I was eight or, eight, eight or nine, I could bike all over town by myself. We'd definitely just bike to the pool every day in the summer, meet my friends there kind of thing. And even when I was younger, I remember when I was about maybe six or seven, they'd like load up the pop on beer bottles or whatever in the back of the wagon and I'd pull it across town to try and go cash them in or whatever, that sort of thing. Or my dad would just send me to go buy cigars for him, like the little Colts or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Did you need a note? No. You didn't need a note? No, because they assumed, well, like a seven-year-old kid's not smoking, probably. So, <laughs> or, And then the lady knew who we were, right? Oh, yeah, so, good yeah. point. Yeah. And my dad would, you know, give me like $5 for a four fifty thing of smokes or whatever, and it was like, spend the 50 cents extra on candy. I was like, all right, I'll be back. I remember getting a dollar from my mom to go and buy her, uh, like, cigarettes at uh, IGA in Brandon. It was a little bit of a hike. And she'd give a note, and I'd give my child permission to buy me cigarettes, and just hand the note and the dollar, and you just stand there, <laughs> hand it up to the lady, and you just look, and yeah, the transaction will go through. Do you need matches? And they hand you matches. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you and go. how old were you? Uh, grade four, grade five. <laughs> so she was okay with sending you to buy cigarettes on your own, but yeah. not okay with you going to the Brandon Fair. <laughs> yeah, but not going to the Brandon Good point, Brett. Uh, the corn dogs were, were worse for me. One more text, and then, uh, Forche, you can jump in on this. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd let my kids take the bus, but I know when I was 10, myself, me and my two buddies, we lived in Elmwood, and we would go all the way down to the Forks, Assiniboine Park, St. Vitale Park, Magic Land on Portage, on our bicycles. No one really cared as long as we were home in time. And that was sort of the rule. Just, you know, behave and be on time for supper. Forche? Um, well, I took the transit bus, like... School bus, I took that in grade six, but uh, when I got into junior high, that's when I started taking transit bus. Got rides to school, but uh, for me it was uh, when I was 13, 14, I had a girlfriend. She lived in Transcona, so it would take me three transit buses to go see her. Uh, so yeah, 13, 14, 
Yeah, taking the transit. You're dedicated. Playa. I know. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Three buses. What buses did you have to take? Uh, I had to take the number 11 uh, from the McIver bus loop to Henderson, then the 77 to KP to Kildo and Play Small. And oh. then I'd take the 43, was it? 47. 47. Yes, it was the 47. Uh, down Regent. Oh, oh my wait. God! Like, did you like shake hands or or say hi and then turn around and get right back on the bus? That must taken forever to do that. Yeah, I think I probably got my mom to pick me up uh, later on. But uh, <laughs> you probably could, you know. probably would have been easier to take the eleven just down straight downtown and then get catch a forty seven. Anyway. Just meet a girl in your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting though in this discussion what what our parents would allow in terms of when we could be alone. And not be alone. It's okay to ride your bike wherever you want. Yeah. Uh, like I remember going to see a buddy who lived out sort of off McLeod, I think, and uh, we rode our bikes through a forest or something. I don't know. And there were trails and hills, and and I, I remember it being like quite the adventure. It, it that's how it felt at the time. But had, had like let's say that both of us had wiped out. Yep. No one would have found us. Just use the cell. Oh, no cell phones either. Yeah, because we were like twelve years old. <laughs> yeah, it's just what happens. And so many parents are always like, "Well, I have to give him a, a cell phone now because I have to know where the where he is." Yep. At my, all but times. The, the my parents did part, that. My parents did that. But the crazy part: we're the parents that used to do all this. I stuff. know exactly, and, and that, you've never had one. So that's it's 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 a weird it's a weird thing about that. I think it's the most bizarre thing about where we're at now. It's our generations that had all this freedom and then we're imposing all this lack of freedom on our children. And is it because we don't trust our kids or we just don't trust the rest of society? What has, what's the tipping point been to make us so concerned about what our kids are doing and we will not let them do the exact same things we did? Maybe it's because they don't, we don't want them doing all the things that we did. Mackling and McGarry, we are getting flooded with text messages this morning on the subject of kids taking the bus alone. Did you take the bus when you were a kid? Did you do it by yourself? Would you let your kids do it now? And we're going to make that the subject of our question of the day. And... Greg, we just got a text that made you laugh out loud. It made you LOL. It did. Uh, one of our listeners wants to know, hey, good morning, guys. Let's talk about some important issues. Like, does Brett have a date for Valentine's Day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, as it turns out, I am going to, I just went to an ice hockey match yes. in the North American Ice Hockey League yes. on Tuesday, and I got invited to another one, and I'll be, I get to go in a suite. On Valentine's Hold Day. Hold on. This is news to me. Yeah. I just, I forgot to tell you. Gee whiz. I'm not going to tell you who. Okay. I'm not going to share that on the air. But okay, yeah. you'll tell me later? Yeah. So Am I'm I going to be jealous? I'm going to be mad? Oh, I don't, well, you might be mad that I'm going in a, in a suite, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Valentine's Day plans are all systems go. Uh, and I think there was something about Hal mentioned a fried chicken bouquet. So I remember that. 
Gonna have was, to, it, was it the chicken nugget bouquet? Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so I'll have to see if I can work that into the to the plans here. But right now on our 680 CJOB Facebook page, we have Saints and Sinners tickets up for grabs. So weigh in on that. Just You'll have to scroll down a little bit, but once, once you find it, give us a story, and then we'll pick a winner this afternoon for the Saints and Sinners tickets. Big wreck. Headstones, Moist, and the Tea Party, Bell MTS Place, July 8th. But over the last couple of days, we've gotten some great stories. Yesterday on Facebook, we asked the question, have you ever witnessed unruly behavior or have you ever perpetrated unruly behavior? And we got some awesome stories on Facebook. Like, for example, here, um, where was that one that I liked? The The winning entry here. This is from Tess who says, I grew up in a very small hamlet north of Winnipeg. Hamlet? I always like that town. I know. Like that, that saying? Being a young teen with nothing to do in such a place, the imagination can run wild. A few other youth and myself would spend the week would spend the weekdays rotting and fermenting different types of food in sealed jars. Once the weekend hit, we would wait until late in the night. We would create a distraction across the highway with reflecting poles and whatnot. Enough of a distraction for semi-trucks to have to slow down only for us to pummel the trailers with our sealed concoctions. Oh, my word. I didn't see that coming. We would then make our escape into the woods. This all stopped when one very angry driver got out of his vehicle to capture us. Oh, my <laughs> yeah, get that We used to call that getting chased. See? And so when people ask, Greg, why don't you let your kids take the bus? It's because I remember what I was up to at 15 and 16. That's a good one. So that's our winner? That is our winner from yesterday on Facebook. Congratulations, Tess. What's the saint side in this? That's pure sin. Yeah. Almost all of it. Well, yeah, that was the thing. Were you ever? Are you a saint or are you a sinner? Because we we did have uh, some other question or some people saying, "Hey, I'm a saint." Like Arlene says, "I'm a saint," but I did steal an ice cream once as a kid. I just call that being a badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, such a rebel. Stolen ice cream. Uh, but then on Tuesday, we were asking you to text in stories about seeing these bands. We actually ended up getting a lot of people who were asking to see the bands. Like we had some young listeners who wanted to see the bands, but Sandy went down memory lane with us. Remember Columbia House? All too well. I think I still owe them $128. Well, Pretty sure I do. $128. I don't know. It's a random number. Sandy says when Columbia House was around, if you remember who they were, they would send you a card every month for a CD that was on its way. And if you didn't want it, you have to reply and let them know you didn't want it. And I did not reply and got a tea party CD. I was like, oh my God, I don't even know who they are. <laughs> one night, I was playing darts with my husband, and I parked in the CD, and I, and it became one of our favorite CDs. And Heaven Coming Down became one of our favorite songs ever. Played it at my mom's funeral, and it still remains one of my favorite songs to this day. It was nominated for a Juno Award for Single of the Year. Would absolutely love to see Tea Party at Saints and Sinners and all the other bands as well. So Sandy is going to see the Tea Party along with Big Wreck, Headstones, and Moist. So many memories wrapped up in that text message, in that 
remembrance. And uh, yeah, that, that got me right in the feels, Brett, because uh, my mom's funeral was full of rock and roll, her favorite songs. And so Sandy really struck a chord there on a couple different levels with me. So uh, thanks for sending that. We, we love when you share and you share so such pers- personal things. One that we got this morning that I wouldn't dare read on the air to just out of respect for one of our listeners sharing something that she says she hasn't really shared with anybody but her other half. Um, sometimes that's what our discussions do. We're never looking to re-traumatize anybody who's suffered any trauma, but uh, thank you for sharing and trusting us with your stories and your thoughts. We get all kinds of text messages at 204-780-6868, and we appreciate the feedback. If we don't reply, it doesn't mean we haven't seen it. We just, you know, we get a lot of texts and we're busy here, but I got to read a text message that I got that my buddy sent me listening to the radio this morning, driving his daughter to daycare. And he says, hey, that's daddy's friend Brett talking right now. He's coming to read to you next week at daycare because I'm going to uh, Rivercrest. What is it called? The Rivercrest Early Learning and Child Care on Main Street out in West St. Paul. And so he says he's coming to read to you next week for I Love to Read Month. And she says, no! And he says, he's nice. You know him. He's come to visit us before. No, he's not. (laughs) You have a reputation, Brett. You have fences to mend. So anyway, I just thought that was funny. That's great. Oh, boy. So with that in mind, with that little shot to my ego, I suppose it's uh, apropos that we talk about psychology. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Nice tie-in, Brett. Psychologists play a critical role in the health of Manitobans. I think we can agree with that. This morning, we want to discuss the benefits of psychological interventions from both a health and uh, fiscal perspective and the recommendations being made to address the current shortage of psychologists in Manitoba. You mentioned this earlier, Brett, but I don't know if everyone or all of us know that Manitoba has the lowest number of psychologists per capita in Canada, and both the Peachy and Virgo reports recommend increasing the number of psychologists in our province to the national average. Dr. Joanne Unger is the president of the Manitoba Psychological Society. She joins us in studio this morning. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning. Always great to see you. Lowest Per capita, that yes. that never sounds good in my mind. No, we're at twenty per hundred thousand, and the national average is fifty one per hundred thousand. Okay, so we're not just the lowest; we are incredibly far off yep. uh, what would be considered average. The Peachy report, the Virgo report. Do they say what the ideal ratio would be for Manitoba? Do they suggest numbers they, and where we need to be? Yep, they say at least to match the national average. Why is it so low? That is a really good question. Um, I think it's been a long process that has led to that. So focusing on training, not having enough training spots that are local, um, that people can enter the program. So we get about 50 applicants to the graduate program each year, and we can take about 10% of that. So people are interested in becoming clinical psychologists, um, but we don't have enough enough spots for them to to experience have the training to be able to do that. So is this a matter of the system having to catch up with society 
because for the last 15 years, we've done a tremendous job in the last decade in particular in breaking down the stigma Absolutely. around mental wellness and, yep. and mental unhealth. And this conversation obviously highlighted at different times. Yeah. But is this just a matter of, hey, we're prepared to talk about it. We're more aware of our own mental health. Yep. We're speaking to our uh, GP about it. Now we need help on the other side, right? Specialists. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the issue, one is that absolutely. So as stigma goes down, people want to actually receive services. Part of the other reason, I think there's a confusion about the different roles and different professions within the treatment of mental health. And we need all of them. So there are a number of different professionals that can provide different aspects of treatment for mental health. And people assume that if we put money into the mental health program, that goes to increasing the number of psychologists, and it doesn't. So psychology within the public health system is its own program and department and is not within the mental health program of the WRHA. So people assume, well, we're putting more money into mental health or we're putting money into these mental health programs, but the makeup of the professionals isn't being looked at closely. And so then people don't understand that there there is unlikely to be psychologists attached to some of those programs and some of that money being delivered. What would fall into the WRHA? Would that be psychiatrists? Psychiatrists and um, psychiatric nurses, different level trained counselors and therapists, allied health, but psychologist has its own department. And so it sometimes gets missed in that planning. So is there a conflict here? Is there just a lack of understanding planning in terms of the overall mental health picture being uh, one arm of it being psychologist is what's the disconnect? Feels like there is one. Yeah. I I don't think there's a conflict. I think there's just a misunderstanding. I think it's kind of a snowball effect. If you, if there are so few psychologists, often people don't run into one. And so then they don't get that feedback of how helpful that is, or they don't have someone sitting at an interdisciplinary table because there isn't enough of them. And so they don't maybe understand what a psychologist can offer. There's also misconception that psychologists are expensive. And one of the reasons people have that misconception is because it's not covered by Medicare. So if a person goes and sees a psychologist, they have to pay with their insurance or out of pocket, out of their pocket, or they have to wait on a really long uh, public wait list. And so they may not have that understanding that actually, you know, the price of a public psychologist, you can hire three for one psychiatrist. And people don't have that information. They think, well, you know, let's replace the psychologist with maybe another less expensive professional. But actually, that professional isn't necessarily less expensive. We just think it is because we see the bill that we have to pay in the private sector for accessing that service. Dr. Joanne Unger is our guest. She is the president of the Manitoba Psychological Society. February is Psychology Month. And I, one thing that I'm curious about is when, how would one know who they should go see? Like, uh, should I see a therapist? Should I see a psychologist? Or should I see a psychiatrist? Yeah, there, that is a really good question. And sometimes it's it's hard to know, particularly ourselves, for what, for what we need. Not everyone needs to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. When it gets into the more complex or severe interference, interfering with a person's life, then you want to probably have an assessment done to see what is actually going on with a person's mental health. But certainly not everyone needs to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Psychiatrists are really good at providing that medication treatment. Um, Psychologists are really good at providing psychotherapy treatment. And what we find is it depends on the issue. Some mental illnesses really need medication, and that is their, their most 
uh, effective treatment. For others, psychotherapy is actually your most effective as effective or more effective than medication treatment. So it depends on the mental health issue that you're uh, facing uh, and depends on the severity of the issue that you're dealing with. Um, And there are some really good, um, you know, master's level trained therapists that have training in specific types of psychotherapy that are similar to psychologists. So it's um, the one thing that's nice about psychology, it's a regulated profession, so you know that there's some accountability there. Um, but knowing the competence, and I always encourage people to have a, have some really good questions before they're meeting with a professional to see if this is a good fit um, in terms of what their issues are and what they're needing. There are other layers of issues as well that I can imagine bog down or put strains on the resources within your community. Learning disabilities for kids, behavioral issues with kids have to be a big part of what folks are coming to you about. Absolutely. And so I've talked about the shortage of psychologists in general is particularly prominent in the area of child and adolescent um, as well as within the rural areas. So there we see even smaller numbers compared to the national average and then if we can get access early on, man, you can change trajectories of people's mental health and educational trajectory if you get that intervention and that prevention in as early as possible. How long does it take to get in? Because one of our one of our friends who is a psychologist, I was talking to him because I've been dealing with some some depression ish issues in recent weeks, and uh, he said you should maybe talk to a psychologist, but. It's It could take a while, so you should probably get on this just so you can get on a wait list. So how long, if someone decides, okay, I need to talk to somebody, how long do they have to wait? You know, it's really varied. Um, um, some of our clients tell us that it can, you know, it can range. It depends on the issue um, and depends on where you are uh, in terms of, of your geography. Um, you know, clients tell us they can wait up to a year, two years sometimes for public Private, uh, it can be shorter, but we're finding that private psychologists are now also having wait lists, and and I get uh, calls. I get a call a day that I have to say no to, and sometimes um, these folks are are really quite upset because I'm the fifth person that they've called, um, and it, it's really a crisis situation um, that that needs addressing. One of our listeners here, and uh, then, then we'll take a break if, you, if you're able to stick around for a few minutes, Joanne. Uh, one of our listeners asking uh, about the relationships with the different organizations in our province. And one has to do with uh, Workers' Compensation Board and their recognition of clinical psychologists. Is there a, an issue there with uh, Workers' Compensation Board? This is just a very simple question. Is this true? WCB only recognizes clinical psychologists. You know what? I don't work with WCB, so unfortunately, I can't answer that question. There are certainly some insurance companies um, and other places like WCB that will want um, psychologists to be the one providing that service. Um, It depends on the coverage of the specific institution or insurance company or program. There are psychologists that uh, work for the system and then have private practice, correct? So there's contract, yeah. So you have people within those systems that try to help that system navigate um, and provide good service and good recommendations and good case management. And then they contract out to private psychologists to provide that service. 
February is Psychology Month. In studio with us, we have Dr. Joanne Unger, who is the president of the Manitoba Psychological Society, who have organized a series of events through the month of February. Go to their website, mps.ca, for a list of those events, such as one that's happening tomorrow. It's called Children and Sarcasm, Developing a Taste for Irony. That's happening at 1230 from till 120 with Dr. Penny Pexman at the University of Winnipeg. And there are, uh, like I said, a series of events that you can take advantage of. But one of the things we wanted to ask you about, Dr. Unger, was this story, it came up yesterday. This There's this guy in Toronto, this artist, who was on a flight to Jamaica, and he decided to fake a coronavirus claim, and they had to turn the plane around because of it, all because he wanted a viral video. And it's an example of how desperate people are to get validation on social media. So in that sense, how is social media affecting what you do with affecting psychology. For sure. I think that's probably an extreme situation um, that, you know, won't become a general problem. Um, But certainly we are prone to wanting that feedback uh, through social media. So it's another way that we have learned to compare ourselves to others, um, to look for validation and approval, um, to to strengthen or weaken our sense of self-worth and self-esteem. The, the difficulty with it is it's on us all the time. Um, so whereas we may have in the past looked for validation and done that social comparison, you know, when we're with people in certain situations and in person, now it's on us uh, physically. And all we have to do is open up that app And we can see how we compare to other people. We can evaluate ourselves and we can look and see how much reinforcement we get. And those little likes, um, those little pings that we get, um, each one is a little bit of a reinforcer. Um, And so it acts whenever we get a little ping or a little like, we get this little shot of dopamine, of happiness, um, and our brain likes that and it wants more. Um, And so intermittent positive reinforcement is one of the strongest behavioral modifiers. Um, And so what happens is, is we will look more and more and we will seek more and more for that sense of validation. So I'm also getting the sense on the social media side, never mind the likes and the interactions and the approval that you might get from strangers or people that you sort of know, mm-hmm. the ability to communicate instantly through instant messenger, Snapchat, Snapchat Instagram, yeah. etc. Kids are doing stuff that we never would have imagined doing in terms of asking for pictures, making inappropriate comments. It's like, it's almost like the dating world as well has moved quicker in terms of when you do what, what constitutes a relationship, all those things. Is it is it as bad as it might seem from the outside in terms of how quickly kids are getting connected to things that, in quotation marks, they shouldn't be? Well, there, there's a sense of um, reduced barriers and boundaries on social media and on our phone, um, things that we wouldn't do or say to someone face-to-face Somehow there creates this distance um, that it, and and we're not in contact with those social consequences of some of our behaviors. So people who are shyer may become more open over social media, or we will become more. I, I would like to call it pseudo intimate um, over social media because we 
there's we don't have that face to face consequence, which is um, can be stronger. And so we can disclose things publicly that we would never have disclosed before because we don't actually see the 800 people that are our friends reading what we've posted and their reactions. And so then we're more prone to um, to disclose those things. The challenge is, is that because we don't get that feedback, we may, may not recognize that we've maybe crossed a social boundary. And then also we are prone to that negative feedback that comes back. So when we've disclosed something that may be more intimate than than we would in person and someone takes a shot at it, that has a serious hit. Um, and so that's where you see some of the real negative difficulties with bullying and with um, um, cyberbullying and trolling and all the words I can't remember. Well, Dr. Joanne Unger, we would love to continue this conversation. We'll have to do it another time. You are the president of the Manitoba Psychological Society as February is Psychology Month. Again, for more information on their events, go to mps.ca. Thanks for the visit, Dr. Unger. We appreciate it. Here's the headline, why consumer trust is no longer enough. Over 20 trespassing incidents across the country have been reported on Canadian farms and processing facilities in the last 12 months, including some in British Columbia, Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, and New Brunswick. Environmental and animal activists are everywhere these days. It's no fun for farmers, but these incidences are happening for a reason. That from Dr. Sylvain Charlevoix, who is a professor and senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Sylvain, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So tell us, why is this happening, Selvan? Uh, social media, uh, partially. Uh, but most importantly, uh, I think some groups are taking advantage of the fact that uh, the vast majority of Canadians don't know much about agriculture, and which makes uh, the population, Canadians, a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, and that vulnerability is, is a, a, an opportunity for interest groups to uh to you know sell their own agendas uh whether it's related to the environment uh or uh with uh, in regards to animal rights so there's there's lots going on and and as a result of course we're seeing more and more trespassing incidences across the country there's been over 20 of them uh, across the country and i suspect it, it it has happened in manitoba as well what about things like documentaries? Uh, for example, I know somebody who used to give me a hard time because I drink milk and they'd say, well, I watched this documentary on uh, the production of milk and, you know, the way they treat the animals and the stuff they put in the milk. Uh, that's not good. You shouldn't drink that. The challenge with that, of course, is uh, is that people tend to watch documentaries that which represent one side of the story and uh, it doesn't really provide a complete package uh, so as a result of all this, what we've seen in the last five to ten years uh, are farmers trying to advocate, and they call it advocate, A-G-vacate, uh, and they wanted to change uh, or in, in, uh, influence public opinion on uh, what was happening or what's been happening with, with farming. Uh, but it hasn't been working, because uh, more and more with media more and more people are skeptical about, about farming and farmers in general just because of that vulnerability and the lack of knowledge. And so right now, I would say that activists are really winning. 
You know, Sylvain, you mentioned uh, the whole idea of uh, this uh, advertising. You see the dairy producers, uh, the egg producers, poultry producers talking about what they do and the way they do it. And they're and they're having to justify their existence to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was talking yesterday to uh, the dean of a veterinary school uh, yesterday in Ottawa. And I can tell you, I mean, they're, he's wondering whether the school is going to exist in 10 years from now given what's happening in the media around glyphosate, animal rights, and uh, why do you need a vet school if no one actually believes in livestock production? And so you can see that really uh, there's a huge impact on the entire sector. And so that's why, and, and for the longest time, what we've been measuring is consumer trust. Do people trust farmers? Well, of course they do, but no one listens to them. Which, which really points to the problem. I, I think it, at this point, we need to really start looking at other metrics instead of just trust. And farmers are criticized, too, uh, by some people for the way they treat livestock, but it doesn't make any sense for the farmers to treat their livestock poorly, does it? Exactly. <laughs> well, you and I know it. I was raised on a dairy farm. Of course, if you hurt the animals, uh, you're going to make less money. And so you want to be kind. You want to take care of them goodness we actually gave them molasses and uh, you know we treat them well we they even had names <laughs> when i was on a dairy farm but at the end of the day people will listen to these documentaries and will actually watch look at social media as a credible source of information and uh, and i can tell you right now when you look at social media there's lots of scary information and a lot of people are buying it Sylvain, we know you have to run. You have a presentation in about five minutes time. But as I mentioned to you in my email this morning, the idea that Manitoba is sort of at the intersection of this because two giant pea processing protein plants are being planned and being built in Manitoba. And so the shift in where people want to get their food is also benefiting some farmers in our province. Is that the case across the country? Uh, not really. I would say this about Winnipeg and Manitoba. You guys are at the epicenter of this huge tsunami of change related to proteins. It's incredible. You're taking advantage of it. Merit, Nestle, uh, Rocket, come on. This is great stuff. You guys are generating great stories for protein. And, and, and the mixture in Manitoba between livestock and, and plant-based is phenomenal. There's a harmony that doesn't necessarily exist elsewhere. I was actually in Lethbridge on Tuesday, and you can feel the tension. And in Manitoba, there's probably some tension, but it's not as obvious. And on top of that, you're attracting some, some good companies, good players in the marketplace. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor and Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for joining us, Sylvain. Take care. Bye-bye. Normally we speak to this man at about 9.50, but Jeff Courier popping in a little bit earlier this morning. Jeff, good morning to you, sir. decided to open the bag of gas a little earlier today, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we wanted to, we were having a discussion and, (laughs) yes, and secondly, we wanted to do that for a very good reason. We were having the discussion since 6.15 this morning about uh, uh, the results of an inquisition from our friends of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation about what happened in the Omens Creek Bridge, you'll remember back in December, uh, 
couple of citizens took it upon themselves to clear that bridge of ice because it was shut down and the and the city would come and put back up barriers that residents were were taking down <laughs> so they could use the bridge and finally these residents said enough of that we're going to clear the bridge we're going to make it safe right. and the city was being criticized for not communicating what their plan was not doing what a lot of us thought would be required just to get the bridge open, et cetera. 97 pages of back and forth later, we realized that a lot of the communication that was going on was to cover you-know-what, yeah. not yours, but theirs. And so this ties into something that we got a heads up about that's happening that happened last night on Bison Drive, an initiative from a private citizen, Jeff, that you've been highlighting for some time now. Yeah, Chuck Lewis of Expert Electric has offered four years ago, started this, offered to put up free of charge to the city, flashing amber lights in all city school zones. And we've talked about this story. I think most of our audience is familiar with the story, at least to some degree. And last year, the city said, okay, we're going to take a month to study it. Well, that was last fall. And here we are now into February, still nothing from the city. So Chuck has taken it upon himself to install a couple of these flashing amber lights. Without city approval, mind you. Renegade guerrilla style, oh, shall yeah. we say. Mavericks. <laughs> Maverick Imagine good. trying to improve the safety of our children without city approval. So that's what's happened. Chuck's going to join us this morning at 11 o'clock. But it, it speaks to that larger issue that, that you guys, I think, began this morning. And that is, there's some people who want to make our city better. And in some cases, the city says, fine, go ahead. city says, great, let's have a bear clan. Let's have community patrols. Let's do those sorts of things. Let's make sure that you cut your boulevard in front of your house. They've turned over the the care and flooding of certain community rinks that the city wasn't mm-hmm. prepared to look after right. any longer. That they'll even provide the insurance, but you've right. got to take care of the upkeep. So there right. are examples of the community yeah. and the city working together to provide and fill holes in services. Yeah, and there we hear stories occasionally about people going to fill potholes in front of their own houses sure. because the city just never gets around to it. So why the delay? Why the refusal to approve something which is going to cost the city zero, going to cost the city nothing, except that CUPE complained and they wanted their people to put these lights up. They did? Oh, yeah. Okay. Right, so, uh, so now... Is the other concern, Jeff, before you say to the, what the now is the other concern, is that all of a sudden we're going to be even more aware of these school zones, and that's also going to nev- negatively affect yeah. revenue, which is why Wise Up right. Winnipeg, I think, has gotten involved in yeah. this. Yeah, of course. You know, anybody who thinks that, that, that a lot of these school zone tickets that are being handed out is based entirely on safety is, you know, sorry, what color is the sky in your world? You know, when somebody's getting a ticket on a, you know, on a Christmas day or a New Year's day at two o'clock in the afternoon going through a school zone, come on, that's a come on man moment. So there are some people who want to try to make our city better and the city is dragging its feet in trying to prevent that from happening. So how come? What's the matter with our city? Yeah, it's been eight months since Councillor Kevin Klein uh, put this motion forward. He sent out a note saying uh, the city is broken. Well, it's, a, it it's, it's potentially fair commentary, uh, maybe not an overall statement that I would endorse, but in certain aspects, I don't think there's any doubt about yeah. that. Well, and when you think that Chuck Lewis first pitched this to the city of Winnipeg four years ago, <laughs> four years, come on, guys, how long does it take you to pull a trigger on something that's going to help keep our kids safer? We've had this discussion 
with regard to photo radar on school zones. And there's one not far from here, and I won't say where it is, but there's one not far from here, and there is a vehicle there every single day. And the question I have, and I've asked it on this air before, that if you are generating enough revenue from that vehicle to justify it being there every single day, can you please show me the other investments that you've made in order to make that stretch of road more safe for the children in that neighborhood? And if you've exhausted all your options, then that's one thing. But you haven't, including this fine offer, what I think is a win-win situation for everyone from Chuck Lewis. You have not explored all options and you've not implemented all options to make things safer, if that's indeed your intention. Because enforcement should be your last option, not not the first. But, But it seems to be our first option in almost every case. So we're going to tackle that one today, and uh, it's this is serious stuff, that our, our city is just not functioning as a well-oiled machine. There is something, I don't know if Councillor Klein is right that the whole city is broken, but they, but boy, there are certain aspects of the city that really are, are genuinely not functioning. On the frustrated uh, scale for you, Jeff, because I think you're really good right. at finding middle ground, right. and, and you get frustrated about right. stuff like I do, but I think you hide it better right. than I do <laughs> at times. On the frustration scale of, say, 1 to 10, where, where is this for you? Well, this, this, is, this is in the high scale. On the 1 to 10 scale, this would be on the high scale because it is so obvious. It is so cost-efficient for the city, costing us nothing. Here's a private business who wants to help keep our kids safer because we kept getting told that we're reducing the speed limits in school zones from 50 to 30K because it's all about safety. Okay, well, here's something that's going to help that. And it's going to reduce the need for enforcement. Going to save the city money over the long haul. Now, but it's going to take away that revenue. So, but it's, but on the, on the surface, say, okay, this is going to make our kids safer. It's going to reduce the need for enforcement in those areas. And they studied it. These lights, by the way, were tested. Lewis tested these lights during that huge storm over Thanksgiving. Passed the test. Wow. The the lights work. So what is the problem, folks, at 510 Main Street? What's the holdup here? And that's the frustration, and it's... I think a lot of people in this city are frustrated about that. Susan texts us at 780-6868. She, uh, she wanted something done about this, right, Pratt? She says, I've been in touch with the city about those lights, and the email I ended up getting was that they were still testing the lights. I called BS on that, and yeah. it was not well-received. Shame on them. Yeah, that's, well, it is BS. I'm sorry, guys. It, it should not take you six months to test these lights. And if you have a concern about it, what is it? Yeah. Please state it. Share it with us. We deserve yeah. to know. And if you're concerned that it's going to reduce your revenue, state that as well. Yeah. I mean, we're big we're big boys and girls. Yeah. I think we can handle the truth. Jeff uh, says, J-E-F-F, yeah. at 780-6868. You guys don't get it. It's not about safety for kids. It is about revenue. Uh, Jeff, uh, I, I, I think we maybe, very much do get it. I think we do get it. And if you're uh, mistaking the sarcasm and the open-ended questions uh, for a statement that we don't get it. No, we do get it, and, and we think it's deplorable. Yeah, it is deplorable. And, and for the city to be so untransparent on this one, to just keep on throwing up roadblock after roadblock. Uh, sorry, you can't fool all the people all the time. You know, I know you can fool some of the people all the time. 
but you can't fool all of the people all of the time, and we're not being fooled by this. Jeff Courier is on from 10 until 1. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. And once again, what time are you going to have that conversation on Uh, the show? Chuck Lewis will be on live with us at 11 o'clock this morning. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.